Welcome to episode 19 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. This is a special episode for cinephiles, and our guests are Isaac Rennert, Milan Fernandez, and Max Shatton. Remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So right now, in that order, if you could each just briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Isaac. Hello, I'm Isaac. I'm Skyping in from Calgary, Alberta, and I'm a big fan of popular culture trivia and do a bunch of writing for the game Reach for the Top. Oh, cool. Milan? Hi, I'm Milan Fernandez. I'm Skyping in from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. Super excited to play some really hard film questions from you, Gash. All right, that's our uh, CanCon right there. And uh, Max? Hi, my name is Max. I'm Skyping in from New York City, uh, New York. I'm not Canadian, but my grandfather is. And I'm currently a film major at Wesleyan, but most of my experience with trivia comes from Quiz Bowl, which is how I know everyone here. So. All right, so this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. So these questions will mostly serve as a warm-up, not in terms of being easy, but just in terms of kind of getting your feet wet and getting used to my question writing style. But they'll be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers. Yeah, so these questions, they'll be worth a tenth of a point and might serve as tiebreakers at the end if necessary, but otherwise don't take them all that seriously. For this round only, you'll be answering as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second player and then the third if the second misses. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and a few potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate to each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second, and three in third. The rules will change after this round, and I'll explain that when that happens. And then, you know, just a standard reminder, the content of the podcast is your thinking process. So remember to talk through it, share it with the audience, share any interesting connections that come up. There's no need to ramble for the sake of rambling, but, you know, try and share whatever interesting thoughts you have. All right. So for this game only, all of the questions in this round will be connected to movies. Normally, they're just a total grab bag. Here, they all connect to movies, but they won't yet be connected to the contestant specialty topics. All right, so we'll start with Isaac in first position on this question. Oh, and I'll uh, copy and paste the text into chat as well so you can see it as well as hear it. Oh, excellent. All right, thank you. All right. About which spectacle-loving Hollywood director did Ray Manzarek say that his, quote, vision of sophistication and the darker side of the human condition was perhaps the single greatest influence on the music of The Doors, end quote. After this man's career dried up in the early 1950s, he taught for several years at UCLA Film School, where both Manzarek and Jim Morrison were among his students. Okay, so, of course, I'm going to assume that it's a bit of, like, a earlier Hollywood kind of thing. It's one man, so I'm, from what I'm hearing in this question, and so I was thinking maybe we'd start with, like, one of the Powell and Pressburger duo because of the fact that, you know, the red shoes and things of that nature are very grand in nature, but um, let's... Let's see who else. There's DeMille based on his like epics, but they're not necessarily, I guess, a darker side of the human condition as much as they are more related to the Bible. Um, let me think. Uh, with that in mind, I think I'm just going to probably have to throw this and say maybe let's go with uh, Powell for my directed final answer. All right, yeah. I mean, good guess in terms of spectacle. He really wasn't a Hollywood director. He pretty much worked his entire career in... Oh, uh, yeah. 
But again, yeah, good guess. And Milan next. Okay, so you mentioned he was interested in the darker side of human nature. So as soon as you mentioned that and the fact that he was teaching in the 50s, so basically out of the film business by then, means that he's an early filmmaker who was doing really dark stuff. The first thing that popped into my mind was M by Fritz Lang, which could make some sense. He was doing that in the 30s and he moved to America, I believe, after the escalation towards World War II at the end of the 30s. I also know that he was involved in a Godard film like in the 60s, uh, Contempt. So, so he was still involved in the film business, but I don't know if he was making films. That's probably my best guess. I don't know anybody else who might fit that bill. So yeah, I'll go Fritz Lang, directed. All right, good guess, but not correct in this case. Max? So yeah, when I heard Spectacle Loving, I also thought about Cecil B. DeMille, but the sort of talking about the darker side of the human condition, I don't know if that's necessarily a DeMille thing. But then again, like I'm kind of hard-pressed to think of many other Hollywood directors who would have dried up by the 50s that would have had such a reputation for that sort of thing. So I guess I'm going to do a shot in the dark and say DeMille. Yeah, I was trying to anticipate the kind of the guesses people would make. I thought someone might go for DeMille, because definitely associated with spectacle. But yeah, this is another director. Started in the silent era, also made several sound films, most known for working with Marlena Dietrich. His name was Josef von Sternberg. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh. That makes sense. Okay. All right, uh, we'll start with Milan for the next question. Just in case you ever wanted to see Tilda Swinton covered in juicy tomato guts, you should know that the opening scene of 2011's We Need to Talk About Kevin depicts an annual festival that takes place in what country? Is that it? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I can uh, put the text in there. Um, Jeez. Yeah, I've seen We Need to Talk About Kevin. It's some European country, I think. Uh, Spain is sort of ringing to me. I don't know why, just intuitively. I guess maybe there could be some Italian tomato thing. I think I'm going to go Spain, final answer. All right. All right, yeah, and the festival happened every year unless there's, you know, unless there's something like the current health crisis going on. So it was canceled this year, but generally every year it's called La Tomatina, and it's in Buñol in Valencia in Spain. So that's correct. All right, so Milan first on the scoreboard, and the next question will start with Max. 1992's Jojita Wohi Sikander, the beloved coming-of-age sports drama that gave us the immortal Bollywood songs Yahake Ham Sikander and Pehela Nasha, is often compared to what similarly-themed 1970s American film that was a sleeper hit and surprise Best Picture Oscar nominee? Huh, okay. So it has to be a coming-of-age sports drama of some sort, or some kind of sports film. I'm trying to think of one from the 70s. I'm not super well-versed in American pop culture from the 70s, especially when it comes to sports films. But I'm trying to think. I know Field of Dreams is later. Huh. Chariots of Fire is British and from the 80s. Um, I'm just really trying to search my brain for random American sports films, which is not turning up very many things. Rudy? I'll say Rudy. Is it Rudy? It is not Rudy, but uh, yeah. I'll... <laughs> of the films you mentioned, I think Rudy is the one that was not a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. But... Oh, fuck, wait! Shit. Ooh. Oh, God. Wait, I have a be- much better guess, but I... Yeah, yeah, all right. But yeah, no, always yeah, always guess something. There's no penalty on any of these questions for incorrect guessing, so it's always in your best interest to guess. All right, next it goes to Isaac. All right, so Rudy was also the first thing that came to my <laughs> mind as an American sports film. 
most of what I know about American sports films comes from the Simpsons episode guides where they would make a list of all the references they would make <laughs> to different films. So I was thinking of the one where they're trying to go to like the the Super Bowl or something along those lines. All right. So now we actually have to think of a different 1970 sports movie. I think Field of Dreams was from the 90s. I think 91 or 92. Um, let's... Let's see. It's interesting that the mind draws immediately to like baseball. I was sort of let me. So um, let's see. The oh man. Well, okay, that would be from the. I'm immediately drawing again to another baseball film, A League of Their Own, but I doubt that was a. I don't. I think that was from the '80s because uh, you know it was with Madonna and such. But um, let us see what else is up there. I can something. All right baseball films i think i'll try and go for i'm going to hope that there was like a remake of this film and throw out like okay i'm trying to guess that maybe this was a film that is more commonly known for the remake prior to was actually a sports film in the 70s and go with remember the titans directed this is the only thing that's coming to mind at the moment so i i really can't uh <laughs> When you brought up mentioning more recent films, that wasn't quite the one I thought you'd go for, but I can see your logic there, but uh, not correct. I think you're all toward kind of the young millennial generation, so maybe asking about older Hollywood movies might be a, a little out of your depth, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I think see. we're all 99, so like 1999, so that's uh, that explains it. Milan? Okay, so this question is including Bollywood and American sports dramas two of perhaps the biggest blind spots in my film knowledge, if I were to say I have any. But I know Rocky won in 76, though I don't know why you would describe it as a nominee if it had won, except to maybe obscure it. And I definitely know it's not a coming-of-age film, but I don't think I have anything better. I have no clue when the League of Their Own is from, but I know that Rocky is from the 70s, so I'll go Rocky. Okay, yeah, when I've asked this question before, Rocky has definitely been a guess. I mean, as you point out, it's it can't really be described as coming of age, but it does fit otherwise in a lot of ways. It was a sleeper hit, and uh, it did win the Best Picture Oscar, and it is from the 70s. Yeah, and this, like I said, I you know I think you know in your generation maybe certain movies that were big at the time have kind of dropped out of cultural memory. But I I thought maybe you know cinephiles might just make a point of going back through the list of Best Picture nominees and finding out about them. So this was a movie that came out in I believe 1979, and both this and the Bollywood movie are among the very few movies that focus on this particular sport, the sport of bicycling or cycling. And this movie was called Breaking Away. I, oh. <laughs> All right, next one, we'll start with Isaac. Dionne Warwick covered three songs from the musical Promises, Promises on her 1968 album of that name, only to have a much bigger hit with a fourth, the title track of her 1970 album, I'll Never Fall in Love Again. So here's a question. Promises, Promises is an adaptation of which Billy Wilder film? Okay, so Billy Wilder, known for being a pretty... Uh, there, there are some... You know, the, he's a very prolific director there are like a, quite a few films that could come to mind when referring to the idea of promises promises uh so you know if we're going down the list there's some like it hot but i don't think that promises play a prominent role throughout the film apart from the promise to be getting away from whatever situation they're in there is the apartment there's sunset boulevard 
All right, Dion, again, I think this sort of speaks to our collective understanding of culture, you know, from the perspective of, like, younger generations, because, like, Dion Warwick is one of those names that keeps getting tossed around, and I see it on, like, many billboard Hot 100 lists of the 1960s and 70s, but I don't think I could actually, like, name, like, put the voice to the name sort of thing. So I think with that, unfortunately, I'll have to throw something out here and in this case with the idea of promises i'll just have to go with some like it hot directed yeah again like i said there's no penalty for guessing and in this case knowing billy wilder's filmography certainly helps you narrow down a lot what you're guessing for so yeah that was a good guess but not correct in this case so it goes to uh, milan Okay, so I can think of only five Billy Wilder films right now for some reason, one of which was Some Like It Hot, the others being The Apartment, which would seem to make probably the most sense for me, since if I recall correctly, that's about a like an employee at like a firm and her boss is having an affair with her and he keeps promising to divorce his wife to leave her for, for this employee. There's Double Indemnity, which oh. I don't remember having much to do with promises. I don't know anything about Ace in the Hole, but I guess that's another guess I could use, but I think the apartment makes the most sense. So I'll go the apartment. Yeah, I really would be curious what a musical based on Ace in the Hole would look like. But yeah, I mean, you know, Sunset Boulevard was made into a musical under that title, which I think did win the best musical Tony, but Promises, Promises is adapted from the apartment. Good job. And the next one starts with Milan. In Thunderstruck, a seemingly innocuous 2012 family comedy released five years before Get Out, an untalented white boy magically appropriates the basketball skills of which NBA star? Oh boy. All right. So how many basketball players do I know? This is this is going to have to be a complete shot in the dark. Let's go with let's go with a recent famous one. Let's go Kobe Bryant. All right. Good guess. Not correct in this case. Max. So. I was trying to think about who would be playing basketball at that time, since that was around the only time in my life which I actually followed the NBA, uh, was when I was 10 to 12, probably. And I guess because the question seems pretty sparse on clues, what struck me was the title of the film Thunderstruck, which got me thinking about the Oklahoma City Thunder, who I'm pretty sure the most famous player to play for them at that time was Kevin Durant. So... I'm going to guess Kevin Durant. All right, yeah, good logic. And yes, that was the correct clue to pick up on, and it is Kevin Durant. Nice. All right, next one will start with Max, and this one goes back even further in Hollywood history, which, I mean, may, if you are uh, true cinephiles, may be a bit more to your speed or not. We'll see. Call Me Irresponsible won a Best Song Academy Award for the 1963 Jackie Gleason vehicle Papa's Delicate Condition, a film based on the childhood memoir of what silent film star, whose portrayal of Lord Nelson's mistress Emma Hamilton in 1929's The Divine Lady made her an early Best Actress Oscar nominee. She later married Washington founding owner George Preston Marshall and co-wrote the fight song still used by that NFL team to this day. Oh boy. Okay, so silent film actresses. Um, it's not Mary Pickford because she married Douglas Fairbanks. I know Marlene Dietrich came up in the von Sternberg question, so it's, I don't think it's her. Um, I know Lillian Gish was a silent film star who was around enough to like be a Knight of the Hunter and stuff like that. So I'm leaning towards her, especially because no one else just jumps to mind as being like 
I don't know. It just comes to mind as a good guess. And I really can't be bothered to think of anyone else right now, especially because my silent film knowledge is negligible. Uh, so I, I will say Lillian Gish directed. All right. Yeah. Lillian Gish actually was still starring in movies into the 1980s. Uh, had an incredibly long career. But yeah, good guess. Not correct in this case. Isaac? So when I think of silent film stars, I think of the ones uh, mentioned by Max. But one that always comes to mind for me is Faye Ray, because there was an answer, it was a repeated answer within Reach for the Top for a very long time, and I remembered that I remembered Faye, but I couldn't remember Ray, so I guessed Faye Wong incorrectly at the (laughs) Nationals tournament, and so I was just, like, I'm trying to think of whether or not that comes to mind, either just because it's the only other silent film star I'm thinking of, or if there is an inherent, like, musical clue that was used within that question and that sort of directed me towards that name that very erroneous name i think with that in mind i'll throw out fei directed all right yeah we'll be getting to east asian cinema later in the game so we'll see if fei wong comes up then all right <laughs> yeah i know fei again very good guess but not correct and uh, milan yeah similarly this is also not my specialty i i'm thinking especially American cinema in the 20s, I'm not too familiar with outside of just browsing the Oscar list of winners and nominations. Uh, I think Mary Pickford won something around there. So let's go with Mary Pickford. All right, yeah. So this is probably the hardest or the most obscure question of the game, especially, yeah, it's probably not something anyone would know unless they really either specialize in knowing about that era or they, you know, just went back through lists of Best Actress nominees and looked into each and every one because... She's, you know, not even all that famous among Best Actress nominees. But the other way to get it would just be wild guessing surnames that are related to the silent era, because although I believe she's not in any way related to D.W. Griffith, her name was Corinne Griffith. Mm. All right. Interesting. The last cycle of these now, we'll start with Isaac in first position. And remember that generally for real people, last names are acceptable if you don't know a first name. Here's a question. What performer introduced the song The Windmills of Your Mind on the soundtrack of 1968's Thomas Crown Affair? He was a minor star in the 60s, but is chiefly remembered today as the son of a man who won the Best Actor Oscar during that decade. Okay, I think I actually have this, which is, uh, I, I may get this wrong but the the song The Windmills of Your Mind is a very beautiful song. I think I forget if it was covered by Scott Walker or not, but either way, I believe the answer is Noel Harrison. Yeah, I'm not sure whether he pronounced his name Noel or Noel, but, but yes, that is correct. So son of Rex Harrison. Okay, I see, I see. My fairly. Uh, yeah. The next question, actually, it's a, a rewritten version of a question that I've asked before. And actually, uh, unlike previous repeats, this actually is based on a question that is in an episode that has already been released. But I really liked it, and I just couldn't pass up the chance to rewrite it. All right, so here's the question starting with Milan. As a principal dancer for New York City Ballet, Tyler Peck doubtless had many commitments, but was still able to find time for a cameo in 2019's John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Her feature film debut came nearly two decades earlier, with a small role in which cult classic? Uh, nearly two decades ago, so not necessarily 1999, but probably late 90s, early 2000s is what it means. Hmm. Is there any important dance films from around that time? I guess Chicago came out in 2002. That has a lot of dancing, right? Yeah, nothing else is really coming to mind. I think I'll go Chicago. Final answer. All right, good guess, but not correct. Yeah. So, cult classic 
for me, sometimes points to like smaller films that were not necessarily well received upon release, but like have built up a reputation, but can also mean like larger films that are just like kind of trashy, but people love them. Which brings me to think of Moulin Rouge a little bit, because I think Baz Luhrmann's an idiot, but some people really love that film. And it did come up in the early 2000s and did have a lot of dancing. So I guess I'm going to say Moulin Rouge directed. All right. Yeah, I, I guess it did have dancing, although with the editing style, you couldn't really see very much of it. But uh, again, I see your logic there. Good guess. But uh, I think. OK, so cult classics, I'm thinking like the first thing to come to mind, although I'm not I don't think it's correct based on the fact that you said nearly two decades ago. That implies that I think it's like 1999 onward as opposed to things that fall within that era. So I was thinking at first maybe something like Showgirls because that could be seen as like a bit of a cult classic with a lot of dancing in it. But let us see. I also have a step up written down here for some <laughs> reason. Although... <laughs> I don't know how, like, I don't know how much I could say that was a cult film in a sense. So I think with that, because of the, the nature of the essence of cultiness, I'm going to go with Showgirls and direct it. All right. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of at the kind of maybe the opposite spectrum where we should have been looking, right? Because if, if someone's currently a principal dancer for the New York City Ballet, they're probably like oh. late 20s, early 30s. So if you go back a couple decades, you get, you know, a fairly young age, you know, somewhere maybe around 10 years old. So in terms of what movies had a bunch of dancing little girls, and if you combine that with going back to the wording of the question, doubtless and commitments, and you put together doubt, commitment, and uh, the name of a dance troupe of little girls, Sparkle Motion, and you get mm -hmm. the famous line about uh, doubting commitment to Sparkle Motion, which comes from the film Donnie Darko. Mm. All right. And now the last one, we'll start with Max, last question of this round, and then we'll get into the main game. Celine Dion's second U.S. top five hit, If You Ask Me To, was a cover of a Patti LaBelle song that originally played over the closing credits of what 1989 action thriller? A different song by Gladys Knight scores this film's opening credits. Okay, so in thinking of Gladys Knight, I'm thinking of Midnight Train of Georgia. I'm pretty sure because she popularized that or at least had a popular version of that. I don't think she popularized it, but... So I'm trying to think of what an 80s action movie that would have some kind of connection to Georgia or the South or a train, and uh, nothing is coming up for me right now. So I'm just trying to think about 1989 action thrillers, and nothing is coming up still. But I'm trying to think, hmm, let's go with Thief by Michael Mann. Sorry, what was that? Thief by Michael Mann. I oh. think that's earlier than 89, but yeah, I, I don't have anything. But good guess. All right. Isaac? So, again, I'm I'm of the mindset of trying to think of late 80s action films. I know that I was thinking maybe, like, maybe there there's something that suggests maybe it's, like, a... I, I was thinking, like, the first thing that came to mind was actually a sequel to Die Hard, like Die Hard 2, because I believe it came out initially in 88, and I would not be surprised if they were trying to pump out that kind of product as soon as possible. So I'm, yeah, I'm just going to go with Die Hard 2 here. Die Hard 2. I, I see that's a very logical guess, but not correct here. Milan? Um, yeah, I, I don't think I have much here I can guess. I know that Die Hard is actually, maybe I'm misremembering, maybe Isaac is correct, but I was pretty sure that Die Hard was 1989, which was what I was going to originally guess. 
But yeah, yeah, I, I have absolutely nothing better than that. I'm gonna go Die Hard. All right, yeah. So again, I think maybe this is an age thing. I think maybe a slightly older generation of cinephiles, especially the male ones, would be more likely to have encyclopedic knowledge of a certain group of action thrillers. But when you're talking about songs that play over the opening credit, and I didn't name the song, which might have been a hint that it had the same name as the title of the film. But in terms of what group of action thrillers are associated with songs that often have the same name as the movie, the James Bond series is kind of what I was trying to point you toward. Uh, yeah, Oh, okay, yeah. The 1989 James Bond movie was called License to Kill. Okay. All right, so I believe we end that round. Isaac got one, Milan got two, and Max got one. I'll go back and recheck all that afterwards. So that puts the scores right now at Isaac 0.1, Milan 0.2, Max 0.1. Not all that meaningful yet, but now we will be getting into the specialist question or the specialist rounds based around your specialty topics. Round one, I call the not all that hard round. It's supposed to be the easiest round of the game. And so in this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. They're not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of the category. They may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories just yet until they become obvious. So the twist is that before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes, to build suspense, I'll pass the question to you without telling you if your opponents got it wrong. In those cases, even if you think they got it right, just proceed as if they got it wrong for game theory purposes, because otherwise you can't get any points if they get it right. So there's no point in copying their guess. There will be some what I call bonus questions. Occasionally, if questions get stolen from you, you'll get a chance to answer an extra question for half the points of a steal. Those are basically just there to kind of give you a chance to show off some more knowledge and give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. They haven't shifted the outcomes of any game, and they're irregularly sprinkled in, so they won't accompany every stolen question. And they will relate to the question. They won't always fit into your specialty category or be at the same level of difficulty. So these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal and one point as a specialist. Those values will go up later in the game. And now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers if there's a steal, even if only one knows the answer. All right, and so we will begin with Milan and Max trying to steal from Isaac. Is everyone ready? All right. Portland's own Leica Entertainment has famously produced five stop-motion animated feature films, all five of which have been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Less well-known is that the studio was built off the bones of a predecessor studio, founded by what Oscar-winning claymation pioneer, who was eventually forced out of his own company by future Leica CEO Travis Knight and his father Phil Knight of Nike fame. Okay. What do you think, Max? So... When I'm thinking about like an Oscar-winning claymation pioneer, the only thing that really comes to mind for me is Ardman, who did, or at least I think his name is Ardman, who did the Wallace and Gromit okay. stuff for right. Ardman Animation. So I guess that would be my my guess. I don't know if you have anything. Uh, okay, so it didn't actually mention anything about when we are. So I guess it could make sense. For some reason, I was intuitively thinking it was like in the 90s. I think Wallace and Gromit goes by that far back. But like is yeah. pretty recent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. For some, yeah. Claymation, uh, Jerry Trinka is coming to mind, but I'm fairly certain he's never won an Oscar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think Ardman is a much better guess than whatever I have. So. Okay. Ardman directed. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not actually sure if Ardman is the name of a person. That's definitely not the name of the animator most associated with the studio, but I'll, I won't say anything more and just give it to Isaac. 
So here's the thing. For claymation people, you know, Ardman was, of course, the first thing to come to mind in terms of, like, more contemporary slash last three decades kind of claymation icons. I'm also thinking... I was thinking of Ray Bradbury, but, like, the thing is... Or no, no, not Bradbury. Uh, Harryhausen. Harryhausen. But the thing is, like, getting forced out by his father would mean that it would have to be someone that's still alive. And I feel like Ray Harryhausen's father would not be alive at this point. So, and then the only other one that comes to mind, unfortunately, is Jan Svankmeyer, which seems sort of like to be cut from like a different, like, I think the intentions are mostly different between those sort of bodies of work of Leica and Svankmeyer. I'm just trying to think if there's any kind of TV series that maybe makes use of claymation that's really well known because I feel like that would bring me towards something that's more appropriate. I feel like television is uh, an entertaining children first would be the would be more like within the body of work of Leica. So with that, I'm oh man, if only I knew who did Bob the Builder. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Unfortunately, I think I'm I'm drawing a blank here, and I'll have to direct with Svankmeyer, even though it's not a uh, you know I don't think it would be in relation to Knight. So Svankmeyer, though, that's what I have. All right. Yeah. So I mean, that was a good line to think about in terms of TV. I think his studio was involved with many TV productions, including I think the show The PJs with Eddie Murphy. But I'm starting to wonder if all this was before your time, because like the most famous thing they did and very commercially successful was the California Raisins. Oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. I'm glad that did strike a chord. I was afraid that would just go completely over your head, and then I'd feel very, very old. But, um, <laughs> The PJs is familiar. I've seen it on like you know, like animation, like analysis channels and stuff like that. But like, uh, I, I I didn't I didn't grow up with a TV, so I'm just I was trying to connect the dots in the best way I could here. You know? Yeah. Even I mean, the California Raisins were slightly before my time, but you know, familiar enough that I was familiar with them. But anyway, this man's name was I think he even is credited with coining the term claymation. His name was Will Vinton. Okay. All right. All right, next, Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. Abbas Kiarostomi's certified copy marked the feature film debut of its male lead, William Schimmel, or Schimmel, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, who until then was known primarily as what specific type of performer? Oh, Oh wow! I I read I read up on this. I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to bring it to mind. Okay, there was all right. So let's think of types of performance. The first one to come to mind is dancer, but I don't know if I I'm not sure if it was that or if let's see dancer. I know it wasn't something odd like a ventriloquist or anything mm. along those lines. Or like a mime. Not <laughs> he was not a mime. So the two that are coming to mind again are dancer. And I think comedian, but I don't believe it was comedian. There was something, you know, like hmm. saying that he was, I, I don't, I don't think saying an actor is like useful here because like or an actor in theater would be very right. useful. Here. I'm still, yeah, for some reason, dancer keeps coming to mind in my mind, but what are, what are some other like performance uh, arts that you're coming to ac mind? Acrobatics. Acrobatics. Being a clown, uh, trying to think, bullfighting, uh, wrestling. I don't know why I'm like going straight for weird shit. 
I think my mind, like, based also sort of based on his performance, like, I, I, I don't know. There was a certain, you know, poise in, like, his posturing and stuff, stuff uh-huh. like that. So I think, uh, do you want to go with Dancer? Yeah. Yeah. yeah All that. right. It I might think be we'll direct. Something, when he says specific, it might be like a ballet dancer or something. But yeah, yeah, we um, might get prompted on that though. So okay, let's just go with go ahead with dancer. Uh, we'll go ahead with dancer. All right, I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Milan. Yeah. So I remember watching uh, recently an interview about certified copy, or was it? It was like a special feature type thing for certified copy. But I think the person that was being interviewed was talking about how. Kiarostami couldn't find the correct like male lead for the film to contrast specifically with Julia Pinoche until someone recommended him this guy William Schimmel who had never acted before if I remember correctly was an opera singer so that's what I'm going to go with opera singer yeah if, if it had been something like ballet I would have probably gone back and prompted you on dancer but it is in fact opera singer right okay yeah yeah that, that yeah all right good stuff good stuff since then, he has acted in a few more things, including Michael Haneke's Amour, which was nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. Oh, true. All right. Now, Milan and Isaac to steal from Max. No one belongs here more than you, according to Miranda July. But in what classic film did Francois Truffaut play a character who states, they belong here more than we? It is not his only line of dialogue in the film, but it is his only prominent line in English. Okay. So I I think I know what this is. Okay. Um, Truffaut was like, the one thing that I remember in trivia, whenever Truffaut, an English language film comes up, is his cameo in like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, what? Okay. Oh, and that would make sense because they belong here more than we could refer to like an alien species. So like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I I feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, that, that's that seems pretty solid in that case, to be honest. Yeah, I uh, do you wanna do you wanna go ahead with that? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, directed. All right. Yeah, he he has several scenes in that film where he speaks in French, but that's his only line in English, and actually has such a thick accent. Uh, Anne Hegarty told me that she would always hear that line as something Mozambique, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that is correct, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I'll speaking of, and as I said, the bonuses won't always be in your specialty topic. So speaking of people who had one memorable line in Close Encounters, I'll give Max this bonus question. What character actor who had a lead role in the horror film Deranged, but is better known for memorable supporting parts in The Hospital, Escape from Alcatraz, The Last Temptation of Christ, and as Old Man Marley in Home Alone, appears in Close Encounters as a farmer who states, I saw Bigfoot once. Yeah, my character actor knowledge is very limited, um, so I can't even really come up with a name for this. I'm trying to think of just like anyone. Um, Guess generic last names and hope to be lucky. Yeah, Smith. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky in Smith. Yeah, sure. All right, yeah. So this wonderfully eccentric man and gave a lot of wonderfully eccentric performances. His name was Robert Blossom. Mm. So. I feel bad, Yogesh. We're coming up with the sentence is and ending with is limited a lot for all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And now to Milan and Max to steal from Isaac. Akira Kurosawa frequently transplanted Shakespearean dramas to Japanese settings. 
We all know Throne of Blood was Macbeth and Ran was King Lear. But Kurosawa's 1960 crime thriller, The Bad Sleep Well, starring Toshiro Mufune as an employee of the Dairyu Construction Company, is very clearly inspired by what Shakespeare play. So I have an idea of this, but I want to hear your thoughts, too. I don't quite have anything right now. I remember hearing something about this being related to Hamlet because there's like some sort of idea of retribution for like a dead father or something. So that's just coming from like, I don't know, somewhere inside of me. I don't know if it's necessarily true, but I also can't really think of anything else right now. That's, um, that's probably better than me. I, I know that Sleep Well is like one of his contemporary yeah. things, but like that's already given him the yeah, and I remember there being, like, a similar adaptation of, like, Hamlet, but it's corporate intrigue in English, done in, like, the 90s or the 2000s, I forget. But Yeah, go for yours. Sure. Hamlet, directed. All right, good logic, or, you know, good recall, or however you got to it. Good job. Um, yeah, it is about a man trying to basically, like, get uh, or uncover and hold people accountable for the death of his father, and it is based on Hamlet. All right. Next question goes to Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. What term, coined in a manifesto published in 1969 by Argentine filmmakers Fernando Solanas and Octavio Gettino, describes the politicized movement that included such Latin American films as Bolivia's Blood of the Condor and Cuba's Memories of Underdevelopment? Its name refers to its opposition to both conventional Hollywood entertainment and the auteur-driven art film paradigm. It's like, I, okay, if I remember this correctly from, uh, I think I may have seen, a, this might have been a clue in a very good film set that we uh, all played by fellow Canadian Eric Christensen. I think it was Gorilla. Gorilla, like G-U-E. Like, it, that, that's the, what they aspired towards for the style of filmmaking. Does that seem... That's, that, that rings a bell from that set, yeah. And given that it's a political and be in opposition to something, that seems like a pretty comfortable guess on our end. Would you not agree? Yeah, sure, let's do it. Although it might also be something like third stream or like something about a third genre sort of in opposition to the two, but I'm also down to not even think about that and do do Gorilla, yeah. So I know that all of these questions are going to be difficult to some degree, but like, Mm -hmm. given that it's the not that hard round, I'm a little more comfortable with it. I also think that, you know, we wouldn't be going for something like the aesthetics of hunger because that's for Brazil. So I think I think Gorilla is, is sure. probably what we should go with. Uh, Gorilla yeah. directed. All right. Milan, is that right? So Max is on the right track. If I remember correctly, it is, in fact, it, it's about how it creates like a, they, they were trying to inspire some sort of change in society, opposing like commercialism and, and um, aesthetics. It's called third cinema, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think back in 2008, I might have been the very first person to write a quiz bowl question about third cinema. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, that's correct. And yeah, Max had the, the right kind of thinking, but Milan got the answer. Milan and Isaac to steal from Max. This may be either very easy or impossible. We'll see. Complete the following poem. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. So this is this is from... Uh... Unfuck me. An adaptation of my favorite show, uh, Twin Peaks. This is uh, uh, Fire Walk with Me. I am 100% certain. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna complain. I'm not gonna question. I'm gonna uh, go ahead. This is uh, Fire Walk uh, with Me. Directly. Right. So I'll give. All right. I'll give uh, Isaac his. Um, sorry, no. Max. Max his bonus. 
and again, somewhat tangentially related. Twin Peaks co-creator Mark Frost has written four nonfiction books about dramatic moments in the history of American sports. One is about Game 6 of the 1975 World Series. The other three are about what non-baseball sport. One of those books was adapted into Bill Paxton's 2005 film, The Greatest Game Ever Played. Fuck. Um... Damn, I really thought that I would only have to mention, like, Hill Street Blues and then get a point. So, like, non-baseball sport, greatest game ever played, Bill Paxton. I'm just free associating here because I'm I'm not super aware of Mark Frost's non-fiction books. But it has to be a game, which narrows it down to, you know, football, football, um, hockey, saw, uh, no, I said football twice. Uh, yeah, huh. I'm trying to remember where Bill Paxton is from. I think he's British, but I'm not totally sure. So I guess I will say, you know, like soccer or football, I think. But I don't know if Mark Frost is really interested in that. I wonder if he's interested in something. Or it's a history of American sports. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So could also be basketball. There was already a basketball question. So... In the interest of time, narrowing it down between basketball, football, and I guess I'll cut out hockey. Basketball and football. I don't know if it's too easy to say football. Probably is, but I'll say football. American football. Directed. Right. Or gridiron football, I sometimes hear it called in other parts of the world. So this that movie, the Bill Paxton one, it used to always, for some reason, it would always come up on the TV at one of the places where I played pub trivia, because for some reason their TV was always set to the Golf Channel. Mm. Uh, it was a movie about golf. Francis, we may, an uh, early American golf player, and all three of those books are about golf. Now, Milan and Max, two steal from Isaac. There's a bit of a personal connection to me on this one. The Devil and Daniel Johnston is a 2005 documentary about outsider musician and visual artist Daniel Johnston, whose most enduring contribution may be the Hi, How Are You mural he painted on the outside wall of what was then a record store in what city? For about two years, I lived just a few feet away from that mural. Another resident of this city, the late great quizzer Ed Toutant, would often wear a shirt bearing its image. I'm like 95% sure this is Austin, Texas. Okay, really? What what makes you think that? Because I remember seeing a picture of that mural saying that it was in Austin. Okay, all right. But I, if you have anything else, I would also... I have absolutely nothing better. You are the uh, resident American on this <laughs> two-person team. Yeah, all right. Austin, Texas? All right, and that is correct. Nice. And now Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. Stan Brakhage is considered a god among fans of experimental cinema, but outside of that niche, his major claim to fame is appearing in Cannibal the Musical, an early feature film written and directed by What Man, one of Brakhage's students at the University of Colorado, who in 2011 would famously win four Tony Awards in a single night. Oof. So, what's a musical from 2010 or 2011? I'm trying to think, because it would probably be based around a, a film, right? Uh, it would be... So, like, let me think. Early 2010s musicals, the first thing to come to mind is, like, the Book of Mormon, but I don't know if that mm. would be... <sighs> let me think. So, the Book of Mormon, come from away, written by... What, man? Okay. Uh, what are... Who are... Some prolific... Um, all right, musical writers include... Miranda, but I, I really don't think it's no, Lin-Manuel. This is not on brand for Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. The collaborate with Stan Brakhage. Oh, 
second Paul is also not particularly on brand because, you know, they're more of the pop rock like persuasion, you know, with Dear Evan Hansen and stuff like that. It has to be an American from a, who would have had their first work in like the 60s or 70s or whenever Brackage was teaching. All right. Or the 70s or 80s, I don't know. Um, uh, maybe like, maybe something like really like on brand for this but off base for like Brakaz which is like uh mm-hmm. like Rob Zombie or something along those lines. What would he have written though? What would he have Oh, Brand that's early 2000s. Um trying to think. <laughs> yeah, I'm All right. Unfortunately, it seems like, you know, we're, yeah. we're probably running the clock a little bit here. Should we just go with one of the maybe should we maybe just go with one of the prolific musical writers of the last decade or so? Just choose one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll go. Uh, I'll go like Benj Pasek directed. All right. Milan. This is interestingly managed to connect one of my favorite filmmakers of all time with a subject I know absolutely nothing about. Um, so I'm very limited in what I can pull from that musical clue. I think Brackage was teaching in like the, the 70s. They're correct there. So, geez, I, I really don't know what this could be was john waters making films already and yeah he was he was for sure yeah i i don't i will guess smith because i have no idea. all right yeah so in terms of tasteless musicals and colorado i was maybe hoping you all might zero in on that clue a little more you know when i think of tasteless musical numbers and colorado i think of south park and in fact, the very first the very first thing Isaac said was Book of Mormon, and I don't know why he didn't keep going along those I, lines. I was when Age was mentioned, I was like, oh, like would one of the South Park guys really have been taught understand brackets? Like I'm ah, uh, uh, all right, that's fine, that's fine. We're 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 okay. We're we're doing all right. <laughs> Yeah, he taught, I think, for a bit longer than all of you suspected. Yeah, because he, he lived fairly long. And I mean, generally with experimental filmmakers, most of their income is going to be coming from teaching because, you know, they're not making oh, money yeah. on experimental films. <laughs> uh, in theaters now, dog store man, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, between the two men most associated with South Park, the one who took the lead on writing and directing was Trey Parker. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right, and I guess when Max gets back, I'll finish the round. All right, sorry about that. All right, everyone ready to proceed? All right, the last question of this not-that-hard round will go to Milan and Isaac, trying to steal from Max. The 1989 hijacking thriller Codename Cougar, featuring a fictional terrorist group called Taiwan Revolutionary Army Front, is an extremely atypical work co-directed by what noted fifth-generation figure? Fifth generation. Okay. So we're we're like in China, right? Or sorry, Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan. Okay. So hijacking thriller. My like, since it's not since it's unlike other things, I'm not thinking like John Woo as first. Right. I feel like Yang would be really on the nose here, especially because he did that film in 1988. That's kind of like a Claire Denis film. What's it? But I, I forget the name. But it's kind of like Claire Denis, Mikael Hanukkah kind of vehicle. So I don't know if it would be him either. Um, I'm fairly certain that the uh, fifth generation is like it refers to like the, those like Chinese filmmakers in like the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Would that be so? Would that be like Ming Liang and like uh, Xiao Xian sort no, of? No, 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 not Taiwanese. Like, oh, okay. uh, 
like mainland China, I believe. Oh, okay. Like I think so. Like uh, the the big ones are like Chen Cage, Jia Zhangke. Who's the other one? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um. All right. So with mainland China, I feel like I feel like. <laughs> So Zhang Ke and who was the other filmmaker you mentioned? Uh, Chen Cage. Who Chen did like Farewell My Concubine in like '93 or something. All right. Do you think that a hijacking film would be sort of like unlike? Because I'm I'm less familiar with that word. I know that Zhang Ke was like Ash's purest white is like a like a mob drama or something along those lines. So I think that you know that kind of actiony style wouldn't be too outside of that kind of wheelhouse but what what do you think yeah i'm thinking about it more and like fifth generation could maybe be a taiwan thing i'm actually less certain that that wasn't okay. a good call i apologize for that okay um, so so i'm thinking between like ming liang and xiao xian in this case right those are like the big two i know they're known for particularly like small like slower films I right. think, though, that if I'm not mistaken, Ming Liang did, like, Rebels of the Neon God, which seemed to be, like, I've heard only, like, by title alone, and that's kind of more is related to, like, triads or something along those lines. Um, you want to go Xiao Hsien? Yeah, he did, like, a film called Millennium Mambo, which is, like, semi-crime adjacent, though it doesn't actually have much action of any sort in it, but... okay. Sure, I, I don't I have anything better. I think I think I think we'll go with Hsiao Hsien. Uh, apologies if we're like <laughs> pronouncing it poorly or anything along those lines. We'll direct with that. All right, I won't try and replicate the or I won't try and uh, replicate the pronunciation, but uh, I'll just pass it to Max. So when I hear fifth generation, the people that pop into my mind are first Jajinka and then Zhang Yimou, but I know much less about Zhang Yimou and I don't really know if i know that jajanka while he does like dabble in in genre films from time to time an action thriller would be pretty strange for him i guess having seen 24 city and the world or part of the world or the first three minutes of the world i'm sorry <laughs> that was assigned for my class and i didn't do it that was the one film though that was the one film uh so i really do want to say jajanka because also i feel like I'm 100% certain that he's a fifth-generation director, and while Zhang Yimou might be in the same era generally, I don't know if he's like identified with that movement in the same way, but it might also be a different fifth-generation director who's just somebody I haven't heard of. But I can't guess them because I haven't heard of them, so I'll say Jia Zhenke. All right, yeah, so a lot of good information there, but yeah, you guys kind of leaped to some incorrect conclusion. So the terrorist group was listed as being from Taiwan, so that should probably have steered you toward mainland China rather than Taiwan. And Milan was correct. The fifth generation was basically centered around graduates of Beijing Film Academy. It was very much a mainland China movement. He shouldn't have second-guessed himself on that. As for Max, Jia Zhenka is pretty much universally regarded as a sixth-generation filmmaker. Oh, fuck, I got them. Okay, never mind. Sorry. Yeah, the fifth generation, yeah, I think both of you made that mistake. Fifth generation is more Chen Kaiga and Zhang Yimou, and in this case, the one you should have gone for was Zhang Yimou. Fuck me. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. You complete that. That, <laughs> that, that. Yeah, that, that when you said Zhang Yimou, I was like, oh, wait, atypical, and the rest are like wuxia stuff, and I was just like, oh, boy, it's probably going to be that, isn't it? So... Good stuff all around, though. I, I always love learning more about East Asian cinema. Glad yeah. we got uh, an expert here. <laughs> yeah, Jia was still a teenager in 1989, so he was would oh. have been very young to be that. 
All right. So, and I believe I'll go back and make sure everything. It looks like at the end of that round, I have 4.1 Isaac, 10.2 Milan, and Max 4.1 as well. So tie for second place. <laughs> and now we'll move into the only somewhat hard round. The questions are supposed to be a bit harder, which may actually be to your advantage if you guys are all hardcore quiz bowlers. Maybe that will be more to your speed, but we'll see. So the questions will now be worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist, two points if there's a bonus. And we'll start with Milan and Max to steal from Isaac. The 2004 documentary, Dig, chronicles the intersection of two indie rock bands, and particularly the love-hate relationship between their respective frontmen, Anton Newcomb and Courtney Taylor Taylor. Name either band. Nope. (laughs) Yeah. 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 what is even an indie rock band? It's one of them. Sleater Kenny? I don't know. Yeah, I have no clue here. I don't recognize either of those names. Me neither. I don't know what was big in 2004. Jeez. What's a band you've heard of that you don't know anything about? Uh, Sleater Kenny. All right. All right, let's go Sleater Kenny. <laughs> All right, yeah. You know, not a, a bad guess if you're not super familiar with that scene. Isaac? You know what? Darn. I, I was also thinking of Sleater Kenny because I think <laughs> one of the album titles is called Dig or something similar Dig to that. Out. So I'm going to try and have to, you know, work this one out based on the names uh, and like what was popular at the time. So let's let's cut the fat here and say that it's not Arcade Fire. It's not like the Postal Service because, you know, was, uh, let me think, would not be Lightning Bolts. All right, what were, like, really big albums in 2004? Um, Broken Social Scene is coming to mind, but, like, I don't know. Something tells me that the CanCon is not going to be super present within that kind of film. Anton Newcomb and Courtney Taylor Taylor. What were some female-fronted bands at the time? So, again, Sleater Kinney is off the list, but from around that era, there could be... I, I, I'm just essentially trying to, like, pick apart Pitchfork's top 100 albums of the decade or something like that and trying to correlate those to 2004. Yeah, I don't know. Unfortunately, like, the, the well is drying up for me a little bit, so I think I'm just going to throw out a broken social scene as a final answer. All right. Yeah, I mean, Courtney, I guess, is a gender-ambiguous name, but he actually is a man. Oh, uh, <laughs> I guess I did say front men, though, so I guess oh, okay. maybe a generational thing about how gender neutral that term is. But um, yeah, so the, the conflict was, you know, one of these bands became much more commercially successful than the others. The less commercially successful one was called Brian Jonestown Massacre. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. The more successful one, actually, uh, from where I currently am, Portland, he actually had the name Courtney Taylor, but like many people in Portland went out of his way to be quirky and so doubled his last name, Courtney Taylor Taylor. And he was a lead singer of a band that actually did the theme song for a TV show that came out in 2004, one of my favorites. But the band is called Dandy Warhols. Okay, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah, those those are familiar for sure. So, all right. All right. Next question, Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. A little girl who begs her mother for money to buy a goldfish promptly loses the money down a sewer grate in what 1995 Iranian film? It has nothing to do with the recent horror movie It, although It, the movie, does iconically associate sewer grates with objects similar to this movie's title object, but of a different color. So, so... Oh, 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 fuck, wait. Wait, is this... (laughs) It's not, it's not where is the friend's house, or... 
it's not in the Coker trilogy as well, would it be? So when I'm thinking about it and sewer grates, I'm thinking about either balloons, red balloons, or or I know it's not the red balloon, but it might be some other kind of balloon or boats. Um, yeah. So maybe I'm, like the white balloon or something along those lines. Yeah, that sounds because like because. Uh, the red balloon was also a red Correct. balloon. Wait, no, the red balloon was like, okay, here's the thing. The red balloon was like, uh, I remember it was brought up a lot in the critic cause it was like uh, the, <laughs> the critics, like favorite film or something along those lines. And I'm just, for some reason, I may be getting misdirected by it in this case. Cause I think there was something about a red balloon on the poster. Yeah. But I'm feeling like okay, so your your suggestions of balloon and boat are really good. I don't know if boats would be particularly prevalent uh, right. for Iranian children, though. Uh, mm-hmm. So, all right, I'm I'm like conflicted between the red balloon and the white balloon here. Well, the red balloon would be the French film, and then the Ho Xiao Shen like remake. Oh, so, okay. I would say white. All right, but or it might also be blue. I have no fucking idea, but. I yeah. think, uh, I think the, I think, I think, I don't know, something draws me towards white balloon. Yeah. But, all right. So do you think we should direct with that? Yeah, let's just do it. All right. We'll direct with, uh, like, white balloon or the white balloon. Milan, is that right? Unfortunately, I am fairly certain there's no 95 Kiarostami film I know of. Could maybe be a short film. Gotta be some other Iranian director. Uh, maybe, like... I think it's a bit too early to be cluing to be like doing questions on Makmal Ba films, but maybe. Either way, I don't have anything there except for Moment of Innocence. I know there's a Farhadi film called like something Fireworks. It could just be Fireworks. That's the only one with like an object title that I can think of. Uh, I'll, I'll just cut you off here. Yeah, it is. It is sure. a movie scripted okay. by Abbas Kiarostami, not directed by him, mm. and it is called The White Balloon. Oh, yes. Well done. Yeah. All right. All right. And so the bonus for Milan. Speaking of the Red Balloon, the classic French children's film, it won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar for What Man, also known for inventing the board game Risk. The Red Balloon. Oh, sorry. The Red Balloon. Yes. Yeah. I did at one point know that name, but I haven't seen this film. Only heard of it. I think his name is like Albert something. Let's go Albert as a last name. Albert, final answer. All right, yeah, you you had half of it right. It's Albert Lamaurice. Okay. Yeah, and the only short film to win a screenplay Oscar, and the only one, I think, at least past the silent era, which was not dialogue-driven. The next question goes to... But yeah, very good job to Isaac and Max puzzling your... When you said the white balloon early on, I was like, are they going to do that thing which happens so often on this podcast of saying the right answer and then moving away from it? But <laughs> you did circle around back to it. All right. Mila and Isaac now to steal from Max. In February 2020, the entire staff of the venerable film journal Cahier du Cinema quit en masse to protest its acquisition by new ownership. So that journal was co-founded back in 1951 by what renowned critic and theorist who is considered the godfather of the French New Wave, but died in 1958 before it really got underway. Is it? Pretty sure this is Bazin, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, Bazin. Yeah, critic and theorist. Pretty sure Uh, this has got to be Bazin. Yeah, like, I'm really struggling here, because, like, I know Truffaut said a lot of things, but, like, he founded, like, what's it, the Modern Times or something along those lines? Or there was somebody who founded Modern Times, but whatever, let's not, let's not distract from it. I think it's best. Yeah, because it says Godfather, right, which means it's probably not going to be someone, like, primarily associated with the French New Wave. Yeah. I know they were, like, 
Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. You're, you're, you're I was going to say, I know they were like largely inspired by Alain René's stuff, who was never like officially part of it. But critic and theorist makes me think it's got to be Bazin, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Bazin. We'll direct with that. All right, yeah. Probably one of the most influential figures in cinema who never actually made any films himself. It is Andre Bazin. All right. All right. I have a kind of um, unusual or, well, slightly unusual question as a bonus directed to Max. So separate from the Cahier group, but still part of the French New Wave, were the so-called left-bank filmmakers, including Alain René. René never got an Oscar nod himself. How many of his films were Oscar-nominated for Best Screenplay? Okay, so when I think... So I know Je t'aime, Je t'aime, I'm pretty sure was nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay. And I'm going to be bullish and say that I think that either Last Year at Marion Bad or Hiroshima Monomore was nominated. So I... I want to say two as the number, so I'll say two. All right, yeah. So René was known, even though he was a very visual artist himself, was known for collaborating with very talented and well-known writers. So his first major feature film, Hiroshima Monomore, you remember who wrote that? No. Marguerite Yes, Marguerite Dura, uh, and she was Oscar-nominated. A very modernist or postmodern figure, Alain Robrier, was nominated for last year at Marion Bad, and then... The other two films by him, also nominated for Best Screenplay, La Guerre et Fini, and my personal favorite, Mon Oncle d'Amérique. So that was four in total. Wow. Yeah, Rob Grier, I've heard good things about all around. All right, now, Milan and Max to steal from Isaac. The first known film of this legend dates to 1907. It has been adapted to the screen dozens of times, including a two-part 1939 version helmed by Kajiro Yamamoto, another two-part version made during World War II by Kenji Mizaguchi, and a 1962 version directed by Hiroshi Inagaki and subtitled Story of Flower, Story of Snow. Identify this oft-told tale familiar to pretty much all Japanese. You can give either the Japanese title or the name by which it is most often known in English. So this sounds a lot to me in terms of like wait no 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 oh 47 ronin i'm pretty sure because that's the only two-part film that mizuguchi made i'm okay. pretty sure all right and that's, yeah I, yeah that sounds right yeah 47 ronin yeah that's uh yeah for 47 ronin or chushin gura is correct good pull good pull thanks yeah were you thinking something else originally i was thinking when i heard the flowers and mizuguchi i, I was thinking story of the last chrysanthemums but mm. then i realized that's a one-part movie so all right that uh, two-part clue was useful then. And there is, okay, so there's a bonus for Isaac. One of the hardest questions here, but we'll see. All right. <laughs> Test the depth of your knowledge. All right. What Jedi Geki veteran starred in at least three versions of Chushingura and also gave shattering performances in several films by Tomo Uchida, including Shikamatsu's Love in Osaka, in which he played Shikamatsu, and my favorite Japanese movie of all time, Yoshiwara, The Pleasure Quarter, also known as Hero of the Red Light District. Okay. Um, all right. So, unfortunately, actors have always been like a weakness of mine. Um, I I think that unfo- I think that because I like probably have to go with stuff I'm mostly familiar with. I'll probably go with uh, Ryu Chishu of like Tokyo Story, like Ozu general fame. But that's probably not right. Let's just go with uh, Ryu Chishu. Uh, yeah, but a decent guess. You know, you were able to come up with a, a respected actor of the right generation. Um, yeah. yeah, someone who's, you know, highly respected in Japan, not really known in the U.S. at all, but I just kind of wanted to give him a shout out. His name was Chiezo Karaoka. Okay. All right, cool. All right. And now Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. 
After scripting all three films in Alejandro González Inarritu's so-called death trilogy, Guillermo Arriaga got behind the camera to helm 2008's The Burning Plane, which marked one of the first major film roles for what future Oscar winner, who at the time was co-starring on a TBS sitcom? Oscar, Oscar winners. Oscar winners all around. Let's see. Does anybody remember The Burning Plane? I do not. Neither, yeah, neither, neither do I, unfortunately. Ariaga, let's see. Who's who's a sitcom actor that became, like, legit and did, yeah. did the Oscar-winning role? I'm trying to think. Fairly Oscar. recently, someone young. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was uh, my my mind first shifted towards someone that was young. I feel like uh, what's it? Kevin Zane Wallace had not been born yet, so I'm not gonna no I'm not, <laughs> no, no not gonna <laughs> or like three years old or something along those lines. Let's see. Uh, who, what else are like so Oscar winning roles? Or wait, is it? It is a winner. Okay, it is an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. So let's think back to like, all right, did it, I forget, did Heath Ledger get the posthumous? Oh, wait, well, no, he was was probably seasoned at that point. Yeah. um, Then. Eddie Redmayne? No, he wouldn't be a sitcom actor. No, he's also British, right? Yeah. um, like I'm thinking TBS, I'm thinking like pretty true blue American, so... Steve Carell didn't win anything no. for Foxcatcher, right? Which is an underrated performance, but um, let's think. Sitcom actors at 2013. I'm really, I'm really grasping at straws here. Uh, let's could. Oh, what's her name? What's her name? The one that played um, Ma. Ma. Did she win something? I was uh, Davis. Davis. Viola Davis. I was thinking maybe. Uh, like, I, I thought Ma was... Was she a sitcom actor by 2008? I'm not sure. I I honestly... I can't come up with anyone at this all point. Right. Should, we, should we just direct maybe Davis? Sure. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll direct with Davis. All right, yeah. Viola Davis, a very respected stage actress and not someone who's been in sitcoms. Uh, Milan? I think this one has me stumped, too. I knew I should have reviewed Oscar winners before trying this. But um, I'm thinking of all the ones that have won the big award, right? So, like, best actor, best actress. Not a lot of them come to mind as, like, being recent actors. They've all been people who've mostly been working for a long time now. But I know Mark Rylance has won best supporting actor. And if I remember correctly, he wasn't in much stuff before Bridge of Spies. So I think that's probably the best guess I'm going to get. I'll go with Rylance. Again, a, a very respected stage actor in the UK, and one of a surprising number of prominent Shakespearean actors who are Shakespeare truthers and don't believe Shakespeare actually wrote Shakespeare. But <laughs> yeah, no, this um, yeah. So by the way, I think with Ma, you were actually thinking of Octavia Spencer. By the way, oh, uh, oh, oh yeah, who did actually do quite a bit of. I don't know if she was a regular, but certainly guest starred on many sitcoms. A surprisingly short gap between uh, her first Oscar nomination and her appearance on Wizards of Waverly Place. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're thinking of someone even even younger, very much starting out their career in 2008. And like you said, American and someone who uh, went on to become one of the biggest movie stars in the world. But just a couple years after that, she got her very first Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone. Her name, oh, Jennifer yeah. Lawrence. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Where's the pizza, you know? <laughs> Slightly more famous than she is Okadaoka, a little bit. Um, all right, Milan and Isaac now to steal from Max. The 2005 BBC miniseries Fingersmith 
stars Sally Hawkins as a pickpocket who gets roped into a scheme to gaslight an heiress out of her inheritance, only to develop lesbian feelings for her mark. And then there's a twist that turns the entire tale on its head. That same story, more or less, is told in what director's visually sumptuous 2016 erotic thriller, The Handmaiden? Oh. Uh, Brooke Chan-wook, right? Yeah, Chan-wook, yeah. Right. Directed, yeah. All right, yeah. I'm guessing The Handmaiden was what gave it away. Yeah, yeah. I was, it sounded a little bit like the favorite at first, but like, as soon as you give the handmaiden, it's like, I know that the favorite wasn't 2016, but like, you know, that kind of social positioning, lesbians, you know, that's similar, but handmaiden was like, solidly channeled. Yeah, right. I wasn't sure how much to clue whether I should give that title or whether I should let you try and deduce it from the fact that it's basically the same kind of wordplay as Fingersmith. But, um, mm. Oh, oh, clever, clever. Yeah, but yeah, it's very uh, visually beautiful film, makes incredibly good use of purple. All right, and now Milan and Max to steal from Isaac. What 1988 film, whose title is a one-word girl's name, marked the feature directorial debut of Czech animator Jan Svankmajer? It shares its title with an unrelated 1990 film directed by Woody Allen and starring Mia Farrow, as well as with a long-running CBS sitcom based on a Martin Scorsese film. Pretty sure this is Alice, right? I have actually seen this Svinkmeyer film. Yeah, all right. I have seen a Svinkmeyer film, which is Alice. And it seems to line up with everything else, right? Because Alice doesn't live here anymore by Scorsese, I think it's Yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. Yeah. Alice directed. All right, yeah. It was an adaptation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis yeah. Carroll. All right, Isaac and Max now to steal from Milan. In addition to her groundbreaking experimental films, Maya Darren is also known for ethnographic work, like 1954's Divine Horseman, The Voodoo Gods of Haiti. Her interest in Haiti may have stemmed from her time as personal assistant to what pioneering black American female anthropologist who is better known for contributions to the arts? Hmm. Sounds... Whoa, wait, is this my question, or...? It's for us, so we can consult on this. Oh, boy. So... Better known for contributions to the arts. So, let me see. Personal assistant. Something like, I don't know why, but the first thing to come to mind was, like, Josephine Baker. Although I'm no, not... No, like, she's not an anthropologist. I'm, yeah, I, I wasn't... Yeah. I'm really thinking about Hurston, because Hurston made movies, too. Oh, and okay. she was an anthropologist by training, but, like, her her, her fiction is obviously, like, more sort of well-known. I don't know if it counts as arts, but she did direct movies as well. Ethnographic films, I'm pretty I, sure. I feel pretty comfortable with that because I, I, I'm, I'm directing this all to you. This feels yeah, a little academic. Sure. The academic side of this quiz. So, yeah, do you just want to direct with that in that case? Yeah, is it Hurston? I think in a previous episode, I had a question about, like, what was the name of the white supremacist movement that gave rise to what I pretty strongly clued as Ralston Purina. And, of course, everyone guessed Purina, because that's an extremely logical guess there. Just like, you know, asking about a pioneering black female anthropologist better known for contributing to the arts who had an interest in Haiti and voodoo. Horston is an extremely logical guess. I can't fault you even a little bit for guessing that. But, like Purina, it's not correct. Milan? So Hurston was my first and only guess as well for this. I can't think of a single other anthropologist who's also involved with the arts who would also be a black woman. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to resort to a guess here of Smith. 
All right, yeah. So um, your, your guess of Josephine Baker wasn't actually that far off the mark, right? Because Maya Darren was known for movement and for using herself, kind of using her own body and its movement in her films. So she had a strong interest in dance and choreography. The black American female dancer and choreographer who also was involved with anthropology, her name was Catherine Dunham. Okay. Uh, All right. And now the last question of this round, Milan and Isaac to steal for Max. The words, welcome to the third place, are spoken by a duck in a surreal ad directed by David Lynch to promote which sixth generation video game console? This is this is the PlayStation 2, I believe. I oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know the PS3 had a weird ad with a baby, so I, like, I, I feel like you know, uh, Sony sort of working within that wheelhouse wouldn't be that bad. And then I believe the Wii, the PS. Yeah, this this just seems completely right, and I'm uh, I'm okay with passing it off to you. PlayStation Two directed. All right. Yeah, I wish I had a bonus on that, but I really don't know very much about video games at all. But yeah, that is correct. PlayStation Two. It was important to have the specific number, but you got that exactly right. So we end this round. It looks like Milan thirty point two, Isaac. 20.1 and max 16.1 all right all right so now moving into the super hard round the questions are now worth six points as a steal five as a specialist and three if there is a bonus and we will begin with milan and max to steal from isaac a 1974 piece in Film Comment by future Taxi Driver and Raging Bull screenwriter Paul Schrader was the first major analysis written for Westerners about which culturally specific genre. The name of this genre also appears in the title of Schrader's first produced screenplay, which he sold for then astronomical $325,000, and which was made into a mid-70s movie directed by Sidney Pollock and starring Robert Mitchum and Ken Takakura. Okay. You got any ideas, Max? Mm, so, I mean, Ken Takakura makes me think that it's a Japanese-specific genre. Right. Um, plus also Paul Schrader, through his brother, his connections to Japan and, and the Mishima film. Um, He's written a lot about Ozu, too, I know. Yeah, so Jidai Geki has already come up, and I don't think that it's Jidai Geki at all. Or it might be, but we've already talked about it, or the term has come up, so... Hmm. So, like, there are, like, Ozu did, like, family dramas, which have a name in Japanese that I don't remember. There's also, like, yeah, no, I, I can't think of any specific genre besides Jedi Geki at this point. Like, there are other Gekis, um, but forget the names of them, and I, it might be Ozu's genre, but I forget what it's called in Japanese, yeah. Right. Do you have any idea about what the Sidney Pollock film is? No idea. Yeah. Even, even less of an idea. Yeah. Yeah, I'm lost um, there, too. I'm trying to think if there's, like, anything... Oh, holy shit, wait. It might be pink films. Like, the really, like, sexually suggestive softcore, like, stuff that came out in the early 70s and, and shit. But it might not be. Is that, uh, like, Japanese genre as well? Yeah, that's that's a Japanese okay. genre. Um, right. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, okay. Is it pink films? All right. Yeah, good guess, but not correct. Isaac? So... Unfortunately, uh, I probably should have studied up on like genre as a in addition to filmmakers when I was coming down for this. Uh, the thing that I'm thinking, like just because of the nature of Schrader's works, I don't know. They're like from what I've seen of him, they all deal with like pretty volatile protagonists, you know, with First Reformed and Mishima and um, and of course Taxi Driver and Raging Bull being about a boxer, like so. I like the thing is I wouldn't know if I could classify this as like 
more of a uh, as a genre within itself as much as just like how do I describe it? Just like a theme or like a topic. Uh, like like a, I was thinking like Yakuza films because just before this was the films of Seijin Suzuki and like Shinoda in the era of the Japanese New Wave. So I think with keeping that in mind, I might actually just go with Yakuza as my directed answer. Yeah, so, I mean, Strader's article was very much about defining, or, you know, making the case that this did deserve consideration as a genre, with its own set of themes and tropes and so on, and although he did famously write a book about the slow cinema, the transcendental style of Ozu Dreyer and Bresson, his own films of Inuris are a bit more violently themed, and in this case, his first screenplay was made into a film called The Yakuza. Okay. Nice. All right. All right. Yeah. First question that was gotten right, but not stolen since the first round. Mm. All right. The next one goes to Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. All right. The 1935 film El Dia Que Me Quieras can be considered a passing of the torch in that a young Astor Piazzolla, later the father of Nuevo Tango, appears in a small part, while the star is what seminal figure in the history of tango who composed the now ubiquitous standard Por Una Cabeza with his frequent collaborator Alfredo Lepera before they both perished in a 1935 plane crash. How familiar are you with uh, Tango? Bro, uh, bro what? <laughs> no, not uh, at all. I am not. Oh, boy. I. It's unfortunate. I know a lot about Brazilian music or like at least a little bit about brazilian music with the you know the 70s movement and like the funk karaoke and stuff like that but um i don't know like yeah i can't even throw out a name on this i'm gonna be honest like... oh my goodness i i was reading a list to i have friends who are really into ethnographic music and like they and general like 78 rpm era stuff and oh my goodness trying to think of something Unfortunately, I, I don't think I'll, I'll be able to pull this. I'll go with, like, Vasurina as a, as a guess, maybe. Sure. Uh, Vasurina directed. All right. Milan? Yeah, I am similarly uh, in the deep end here. I, I don't know. I'm just going to go with Hispanic surname. Let's go uh, Sanchez. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to spotlight the connections between cinema and other forms of culture here. Oh. Um, so yeah, his films aren't really remembered as films, but more as kind of, you know, part of the general tango phenomenon he represented. His name was Carlos Gardel. I'm going to write this down, actually, because that was like, I, I think that was in terms of content, it's like an amazing question. And I really want to make sure that I remember this for uh, after the quiz. All right, Milan and Isaac now to steal from Max. In 1997, TV Guide made its first canonical ranking of the top 100 TV episodes of all time. Coming in at number 57 was The Lester Guy Show, the first episode of what extremely short-lived sitcom created by Mark Frost and David Lynch about the -the behind-the-scenes zaniness surrounding a fictitious 1950s variety show. Alright, Lynch is all you, my guy. uh, Yeah. Yeah. This is, I really don't know what this is. Would something like, um, would something maybe referenced in Mulholland Drive in relation to that, like, film shooting scene be acceptable? Like, do you remember the names of anything that was brought there that so, may bring something to mind? In Mulholland Drive, the shooting of the pilot they're trying to do, or is it like a movie or something? It's, it's a like, movie. Yeah, they have all these girls sing this song that's like, uh... Something about a star. It's like Wish Upon a Star or something. There's 
There's no. there's 16 Reasons by Connie Stevens right. is yeah, the song that opens it. And then I think it's a different one that is sung afterwards, which is like Wish Upon a Star or something along those lines. Um, Do now, you think that could connect to any... I think that that I think that could maybe maybe be seen as like some sort of connect. Is there a title of the film that's dropped at all? Like like whatever. I, like I don't just think so. Wrote? Okay. Yeah. Um. Do you want to go with like Wish Upon a Star then? I think I like Sixteen Reasons Why better. Sixteen. That re- sounds like 16 a. Reasons. Sixteen Reasons. Uh, is the name sure. of the song. So okay. Let's try and go with 16 Reasons, and we will direct it. Right, yeah. 16 Reasons Why it might be like a sequel to a current Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I saw Max grab his head, perhaps in frustration. During the, did, did anything come to you? It was in frustration and then in resolution, because I know that David Lynch has been involved with, I think, three TV things, Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return hotel room which was not did not involve mark frost and then a sitcom series which i could not for the life of me try to remember the name for for like 20 seconds and then i realized it's on the air i'm pretty sure it's called on the air so on the air yeah just a a kind of generic tv related phrase it is just called on the air nice yeah good pull thanks all right so still tied between uh isaac and max in second place Mm -hmm. all right (laughs) okay milan and max now to steal from isaac 2015's Oscar-nominated prologue, intended to open a planned adaptation of Lysistrata, was the last film completed by what Canadian animator before his 2019 death? First breaking through with 1958's Little Island, this man created title sequences for many classic 60s films and won an Oscar for his 1971 version of A Christmas Carol. He's probably best known, though, for serving as animation director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and for spending three decades attempting to complete the animated fantasy film The Thief and the Cobbler, which was finally released in two butchered mid-1990s versions titled The Princess and the Cobbler and Arabian Night, with a K. No, definitely not. I know one Canadian animator whose name I'm forgetting right now. That Scottish guy. McLaren? Yeah, Yeah, that's not him. Oh, I had to. Nope. Jeez, um... Yeah, I can't even throw out a name for this one. This is completely escaping me. This is beyond my ability. Animation director for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's like, seen a video essay about that. But yeah, I, I, I cannot remember. I never, yeah, I have nothing. Yeah, me neither. Let's go with a Canadian last name. <laughs> uh, Fernandez. <laughs> <laughs> a very prototypically Canadian name there. <laughs> Yeah, I think he actually won a... Yeah, I mean, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a tremendous achievement, and he actually, I think, won a special achievement Oscar, like outside of any category, just a general special achievement one for that. But do you know his name, Isaac? Um, If I remember correctly, like, the thing is, none of the other clues are really drawing me to him, but the one thing I do know, or at least I'm thinking, is that, like... Oh, oh, no, it isn't... Not him? Okay, um, I feel like, was it Don Bluth that was involved in The Thief and the Cobbler? Because, like, I remember there was, it, I, I remember knowing about, like, the, the Thief and the Cobbler, the story about the recobbled cut and stuff like that, and I feel like that was meant to be his crowning achievement, but I don't think Don Bluth died in 2019, but, you know what, I'm just gonna throw out, uh, Don Bluth. All right, yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, animation directors who weren't associated with Disney, or well, Don Bluth did work for Disney, but he was not primarily associated with them. So, I mean, you at least managed to, to pull out a guess there. But this man's name was Richard Williams. 
Richard Williams. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Isaac and Max to steal from Milan. In 1997, an abstract experimental work by German-born animator Oscar Fischinger, set to J.S. Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, number three, was added to the National Film Registry. The title of that work is blank blank number one, where the blanks are filled by what two-word description of Fischinger's technique? So, okay, I know, so Fischinger, Fischinger, I do know, um, he was a guy that used a lot of circles, a lot of colored circles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like what I primarily know him for. So there's something that that draws me to the notion of like light play or something along those lines, like where it's it's about um, reflecting light onto a surface and I think light play or light drama or something along those lines seems potentially reasonable. I'm, I'm really, are there any, like, I don't know. I forget the name of the film that I had seen by Fischinger, but I know that it was a lot, a lot of like white circles, like, uh, like different multicolored circles. So do you have any better suggestions than light play? Absolutely not. All right. I have no idea what this is. Yeah. I think then in this case, we're going to go with light play. All right. Very good guess. Milan? Yeah. So I'm drawing a blank here. I remember Fischinger's films are like, they have a bunch of shapes and they're moving in different directions. And he plays a lot with the interaction of that with the rhythm of the music. I don't know if this is the one film that I saw by him that you're talking about here. I feel like movement is in the name of the title. It's something like light movement. Yeah, I'll give light movement directed. All right, yeah, you both were kind of on the right track, and Milan maybe was a little closer, but the other thing notable about Fischinger was that he actually painted the anime, I think the animation cells or whatever, each frame was a painting. So this film was called Motion Painting Number One. Oh, oh, interesting. All right. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Good content. All right, now Milan and Isaac to steal from Max. All right, this is kind of a a long question, and I I toyed with many different ways of wording it, so we'll see how that works out. What highly experimental spy thriller, which perceptive critics should rate at least an 8 on a scale from 1 to 10, shares its title with, but is otherwise unrelated to, a documentary added to the National Film Registry in 1996 that was compiled from footage shot in secret by Dave Tatsuno inside a Japanese-American internment, inside an an internment camp for Japanese-Americans. This film... Yeah, so the original film I was talking about, its cast included such French New Wave veterans as Michel Soubor, Michel Piccoli, Philippe Noiret, and Mrs. Antoine Duanel herself, Claude Jade. But perhaps its most memorable performance is given by black American actor Roscoe Lee Brown as a French secret agent sneaking into and out of a Harlem hotel. Wow, okay. Sounds really cool, but I don't know. Okay, the first thing that drew my... Isaac, I think you're frozen. Isaac? Hey, Isaac, you hear us? Uh... Sorry, I, I need to re- read this. Uh, it was really cutting out for me in the second uh, second half, so I just got to take a look. Okay. So, okay. So, experimental spy thrillers, and it is French New Wave or French New Wave affiliated. Um, so, all right. Out One is not a spy thing at all. Milan and I sat together and just, like, watched the whole thing over a few days, so... We know that intimately. Let's think. What are what are like spy, like what are what are some examples so, of like weird spy films? Man, I, I can't think of any spy films besides the James Bond films and Melissa McCarthy's Spy. 
Wow, um, we are, we're getting sidetracked <laughs> by Melissa McCarthy here. Good job. Um, All right. You know, uh, what draws my attention to this is like the phrase, which perceptive critics should rate at least an eight on a scale from one to ten. Is that just a joke, or is there some reference to numbers here? Oh, that? yo, that you might be right. Yeah, that's the thing about yeah. So is it maybe like some sort of um, time? Like maybe it could be some sort of what's it? Oh, thank you, mother. Um, what is it? Okay, I think I think there's something to do maybe with time or like numbers, as you suggested. Let's see. I'm just trying to think of what are examples of like I don't know crime related French New Wave films or French New Wave affiliated films. I'm trying to think of that era. The only spy thing I can think of is the spy that came in from the cold, which is not unconventional in any sense. So maybe it's like ten. Oh. I, I don't know. I don't think he would give us something as simple as like 10 minutes to 8 or something along those lines. But And what could the documentary be? Like the it's an internment camp uh, relating and... Yeah, yeah. See, that part doesn't ring any bells whatsoever. Maybe like... Oh, that's probably not good. I'm, I'm thinking of like a man escaped as like a title. Um, but, but that's not really New Wave, is it? No, not quite yet. It also says... Uh, yeah, I think that's like fifty nine. Um, Should all right. I think I think uh, we're really sort of running the clock here, so yeah. I think we should begin to make a decision. So what about, to do with, yep. What about like a Melville film? He did like a bunch of crime stuff. It's possible he did like so, some. There's like Army of Shadows. There's like um, uh, Army of Shadows might make sense because it's like you know a grouping of people that are being treated this kind of way. So sure. do you maybe we just want to go with that since we're like Yeah, let's let's go for it. Alright, Army of Shadows directed. Alright. Yeah, I mean I think you could probably tell that was a, a bit of a long shot there, but good job coming up with a guess. Max? I was also gonna say Army of Shadows. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Like I was thinking, yeah, from the outset primarily of Jean Pierre Milville films. I thought of Un Flick, but that's not really Something that would be the name of a of a of a of a documentary made inside an, an internment camp, I don't think. So yeah, I'm actually just I'm completely lost here. I guess I'll go with another Melville thing and say the Red Circle. So the Red Circle. All right. Yeah. So you all kind of went for the idea that it was a French film, but if you notice, nowhere in the question did I actually say that it was a French film yeah. or a film made in French. There were a number of, of actors in the French New Wave, you know, acted in multiple languages. It was fairly common in that time. But in terms of, you did say kind of French New Wave adjacent, in terms of a non-French filmmaker, who was the non-French filmmaker most idolized by the French New Wave? Uh, hmm. Truffaut wrote a whole book about... Uh, Hitchcock, yeah. Yeah. Hitchcock. Oh. And in terms of spy thrillers, Hitchcock. And then the the kind of the lateral thinking through, which I thought maybe you're all you're all quiz bowlers, so you might know a little bit of earth science as well, right? The hardest mineral naturally occurring is diamond. The second hardest is corundum. What's the third hardest? It's like no. We're we're all we're all like culture players here. We don't have <laughs> it's not like topaz, is it? The eight on the most scale, on a scale of one to ten, it's topaz. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, right. that was also the name of the internment camp where that documentary was shot. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. All right. Okay, now Milan and Max just steal from Isaac, and now we're in the last cycle, so each of you will get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. All right. Milan and Max just steal from Isaac. 
The aforementioned 1962 Hiroshi Inagaki film Chushingura Hana no Maki Yuki no Maki marked the final film appearance of what revered Japanese screen star who lived until 2015 but spent the last several decades of her life in seclusion, a disappearing act that probably inspired the plot of Satoshi Kon's superb animated film Millennium Actress. The novelist Shusaku Endo wrote that after seeing one of this actress's films, quote, we would sigh or let out a great breath from the depth of our hearts, for what we felt was precisely this. Can it be possible that there is such a woman in this world? End quote. Okay. Jeez. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not a big enough weed to answer this, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not good with uh, actors in general. Yeah, I literally only know probably one Japanese actor from like the mid-20th century. It is Toshiro Mufune, who is, this is obviously not Toshiro Mufune, so... I can't even think of someone. I so, who played, sorry, go ahead. Who played Noriko in the Ozu? I film? was I was just yeah. about to ask you that. I have no <laughs> idea. Yeah, but I don't know. That's the only um, Japanese actress I would Shit. think of. Um, um, so I I have no idea. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'd go with the the most common Japanese family name, Sato. Okay, sounds good. Sato. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. May as well guess. There's no penalty for guessing. Isaac. So all right. The 1962 film. Oh, okay. I thought that's a 1952, and I was afraid because I think late. Oh, wait, no. Late Spring's 48. Is it? Wait. Is it? Am I doubting myself again? All right. I know one Japanese actress from that era, and I wrote a question in the Japan themed Reach Pack that I read to Milan a few days earlier. Uh, I'm going to go with Setsukahara. Setsukahara. Yeah, so um, you asked who played Noriko in the Noriko trilogy by Ozu, and that is, in fact, who you should have been going for. And her name is, as Isaac said, Sasukohara. Hold on, Isaac. Thank you. When I, I about a decade ago, I lived in the, the international house at Berkeley, and I you know, used to talk to some of the Japanese people there. One of them told me that his father, I think, worked for a museum and actually got an interview with Sasukohara during her retirement, which was very rare, which was really cool. The ones who are a little old, even the ones who are just like a decade or so older than me, they couldn't even talk about her. Like, merely bringing up the name, they just became so overcome with emotion, they couldn't even, like, form sentences anymore. <laughs> that's how much, that's that's how much you know, Japanese people, particularly Japanese men, were of her. She just really embodied the sort of idealized notion of the Japanese woman. Yeah, very, like, pure, very, uh, you know things of that nature and like you know there's that winning smile and all oh man fantastic fantastic performer yeah some of those performances particularly uh, tokyo story right some of the greatest performances put on film i would say oh yeah no question all right isaac and max now to steal from milan so in the 2012 sight and sound critics poll the most recent iteration of the closest thing we have to a canonical ranking of the greatest films ever made tied at number 42 was close-up Abbas Kurosawa's metafictional depiction of an incident in which a man named Hossein Sabzian was convicted of fraud for impersonating what Iranian film director, who incidentally he does not resemble in the slightest. Virtually all cast members in Close Up, including this man, play themselves and recreate incidents they had previously enacted in real life. It's Mahmoudov. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Mahmoudov. All right, yeah. I think Milan said his name earlier, unfortunately, but you probably would have gotten it anyway. Yeah. I've seen Close Up. It's a good, it's a good one. I'm watching uh, it on Saturday. I think. Uh, have fun. Enjoy. Thank you. Going into the final question that shakes up the scores slightly, it actually puts Isaac in first place, just ahead of Milan, and Max just a little bit behind. 
So now the last one, Midland and Isaac to steal from Max. So my favorite French New Wave filmmaker is Alain René, but for this game, I'm going to the Truffaut well quite a bit, and I'm going back there one more time. Truffaut is the wild child in which he cast himself as Jean Itard, the real-life physician who attempted to educate the feral child Victor of Aveyron in the early 19th century, made extensive use of music by Antonio Vivaldi, particularly the concerto in C major for mandolin strings and harpsichord. This likely influenced the use of that concerto on the soundtrack of What American Film, a Best Picture Oscar winner whose central relationship sort of vaguely echoes the one between Dr. Itar and Victor in The Wild Child. Like, okay, okay wait. So I'm thinking, did, okay, did Goodwill Hunting win an Oscar? It won Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, I think. Okay, because that's the first thing that came to mind for me. Yeah, as a like a sort of like maybe like again it's like sort of troubled guy and like doctoral that kind of dynamic even if it isn't feral child and actual doctor you know what i mean right. uh, so so let us this, think. The, the first thing i thought of with like some some sort of like mentor dynamic was god what is the name of that film with and bancroft about helen keller oh the the miracle worker the Miracle Report. Right. Okay. Um, Did that win the Best Picture? It won Best Actress. Oh, yeah. right. This is Best Picture. Sorry. Best I completely picture, missed that. Yeah. Best Picture winner. That's why I uh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking um, of like... Okay. That makes it slightly easier because we can just go one by one if we really wanted to. I think... I'm, so it's not American Beauty. It's not Shakespeare in Love. It's not I, Titanic. It's I'm, not... Sorry, weirdly, go ahead. Weirdly, I'm directing towards... Um, uh, the King's Speech, actually, because oh, okay. of the, but I don't know if it uses Vivaldi. Uh, like, I like, would it that could. be something? It could have, it could have been. Um, okay, so King's Speech is on that list. Yeah. Uh, let's let's check out other 2010s stuff. We'll go with. So yeah. yeah. So so, you've got the artist. You've got Argo. You've got Moonlight. Twelve Years a Slave. Moonlight, Birdman, Spotlight, 2017, Shape of Water. Not Shape of Water. Not Shape of Water. Uh, is that I? I okay. Admittedly, I haven't seen Moonlight. You wouldn't think that that kind of relationship exists I there. Don't think so. That and doesn't then, make much sense. All right, now 2000s. We have Slumdog Millionaire. We have The Hurt Locker. We have No Country for Old Men. The Departed. No Crash. Billion no. Dollar Baby. Wait. Lord of the Rings. Million Sorry. Dollar Baby? Yeah. Okay. Ah. Uh, I don't think that's right, though. You don't think that's, that's right? Not, okay. All it's right. like boxing. Yeah. I, uh, I think King's Speech, I, I like as a guess. I like the King's Speech as well because, you know, Vivaldi, he's got that classical thing going on. It could probably suit the very, like, regal aesthetics of the of the film, you know. All right. I think King's Speech. We'll, we'll try for the King's Speech and direct it. All right, yeah. You have almost 45 minutes left in the session, so if you did want to go through every single Best Picture winner, you would have had the time to. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so for the, the purpose of suspense, as I said, I will you know try and, try and build up the suspense, so I will keep quiet about that guess and pass it up to Max. So I'm really drawing a blank on this, but if I had to just do a guess on sort of a meta way, the first thing that came to Isaac's mind was Goodwill Hunting. So I'm pretty sure that didn't win Best Picture, but 
I really can't think of anything else that would have had the same kind of dynamics. So I guess I'll say that. Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, so I wasn't sure how yeah, how helpful that clue would be, because I did try to say sort of vaguely echoes. It wasn't that much of a direct connection. I, I spent, after I noticed the musical similarity, I spent some time trying to think of more direct connections. And actually the most direct one, which I... I should have put that in as a clue now that I think about it. They were both shot by Nestor Almendros, which is one direct connection. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if that would have been that helpful to you guys, though. Another connection, the director of this film actually wrote the screenplay for Bonnie and Clyde, which he did attempt to get Truffaut to direct. So that oh. another kind of case of uh, influence. But um, yeah, this is a film. Really, the only thematic parallel is sort of the father-son type relationship. Although not 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 directly educational the way it is in The Wild Child, this is a movie. One of my father's favorite movies, actually, and one that he uh, made a point of showing to me when I was old enough to understand it. And I think these are the only movie he ever like. After watching it in the theater, he stayed to watch it a second time, which you could apparently do in those days. And fairly similar in theme to a Best Picture nom. My favorite Best Picture nominee from last year, Marriage Story. Movies called Kramer versus Kramer. Okay. All right. And so that brings the game to a close now, and fourth are very close. Max, 27.1. Milan, 30.2. And Isaac pulling forward right there at the end at 36.1. All right. After you took the uh, the yeah. Alice, I was like, I was thinking like, there's there's no way. But yeah, amazing. All right. All right. So you each will get one final statement before we sign off. Basically, you can say anything you want to. It can be about the game, or it can have nothing to do with the game. It can be about the world at large or not. Anything you want to say, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. And we'll go in descending order of scores. So the lowest scoring player gets the last word. So we'll start with Isaac. Oh. Okay. Um, I, I just like to thank you for writing these questions. I was like having uh, been caught up now with your super hard quizzes for like the last few months. I've been, I'm really glad that I was able to take this opportunity, especially because like the format was sort of similar to Mastermind, which I was discussing with Milan like a few days before you posted that offer. I also want to thank, uh, you know, Milan and Max. Milan and I like, you know, we I, I go to the same university in his city, so we we spent a, a bit of time together. We always see each other at Canadian Quiz Bowl, like pop culture events, and I really like have been appreciating having him around as a really good friend. And Max and I have you know kept online like uh, back and forth going for at least a year or so now. So I'm really glad that I finally get to see you face to face. Yeah, that's a that's about it. All right, cool. Milan? Yeah, no, uh, thanks a lot, you guys. This was uh, super fun. I always love getting to do um, film side events of any sort, so this is a real treat. Thanks, Max and Isaac. You guys are both really fun to play with. Yeah, that's that's it. All right, Max? So, yeah, no, thank you so much to uh, Yogesh for inviting me. Thank you so much for Isaac and Milan for playing with me. This was very fun. Once again, as somebody who is still very much in the beginning stages of their journey as somebody who enjoys watching and and writing about and thinking about movies i still this made me understand that i still do have a lot to a lot to learn but that you know it's a, it's all 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 in due time and there's only so many things that you can learn and so many films that you can watch and you know there's just a there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there i guess is what i'm trying to say and of course the happy juneteenth to anybody who's celebrating which should of course be a national holiday and yeah that's all i gotta say yeah 
Yeah, and very impressive knowledge shown by all of you, especially for people who are all kind of a younger, slightly younger generation than me, but have very strong knowledge of, of films, including ones that are outside the mainstream and ones that were made before you were born. So I was very impressed by all of that. This has been episode 19 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks for listening.